Welcome to Vitality Made Simple. The following production is for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you need medical advice, call your doctor. Now, let's go to Vitality Made Simple. Welcome to Vitality Made Simple. This is the podcast that in, that equips you to uh, feel better, look better, and to enjoy better relationships. You know, it's, life is all about relationships, and uh, we're so bombarded with uh, you know diet fads, you know all these things one after another. So today, you're going to absolutely love this truth-filled um, and intelligent. Uh, uncommon sense that Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, MD, is going to uh, reveal to us. Now, Dr. Natasha holds a degree in medicine um, as well as postdoctorate degrees in both neurology and human nutrition. Uh, her first book, which is called Gut and Psychology Syndrome, is my introduction to her quite a few years ago, and she's written quite a few books since then. Um, that book actually created a revolution in uh, the world of integrative medicine. So today we're going to hear all about uh, Dr. Natasha's research and experience in vegetarian vegetarianism. Uh, welcome, Dr. Natasha. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, you're coming to us from the United Kingdom um, with your uh, beautiful Russian accent. You were born in Russia, correct? That's right. <laughs> and I'm coming to you with my Oklahoma Southern twang. So I feel like this is going to be sort of a brain exercise for all our, our listeners to, you know, switch back and forth you know, understanding each one of us were quite a stark contrast. Uh, Dr. Natasha and I met this summer at a medical conference, uh, the Wise Traditions Conference, and I went to all three of her lectures and was absolutely um, spellbound, taking notes. I, I do my notes in shorthand um, and just trying to get every single word. So I was thrilled, Dr. Natasha, when you um, said yes, that you would speak to our, our listeners. So, so let's just jump in. Um, you, you wrote this book called Vegetarianary, Vegetarianism Explained. Maybe I'll learn to say that. Um, and tell us what prompted you, you know, what did you see in your clinical practice that made you want to write a book like this? It's a very important subject in the modern world, isn't it? Because everybody's talking about it and the uh, push for vegetarianism in the mainstream is quite serious, quite strong. I was getting, years ago, I was getting young people with mental illness, with anorexia, bipolar disorder, anxiety, and other mental problems, and physical problems too, who became ill because of vegetarianism. Prior to going on a plant-based lifestyle, these kids were perfectly healthy. They were perfectly healthy. They weren't, you know, antibiotics, they weren't any illnesses, they weren't use of medication or anything else like that. The, the onset of the illness was very clear. And that made me very curious. How does all this work? So the first thing I tried to do is to look at science on this subject. And having plowed through it, I've realized that there is not one, not one scientific study on the subject of plant-based lifestyle that we can trust. They're all funded and conducted by pro-vegetarian lobby, and the data is incorrectly analyzed, and the whole data is manipulated, and the conclusions are all wrong. 
the biggest lie I've discovered is the China study, which the mainstream is um, pushing into everybody's face, saying this is the proof that we should all be vegan. You know, and it's a, it's a complete hoax, the whole study. So having looked at that, I started looking at the basic sciences, at biology, biochemistry, zoology, and clinical experience. Clinical experience is very, very valuable. And uh, based on all of those discoveries and what I've seen in my own clinic, I have written this little book, Vegetarianism Explained. Mm-hmm. Where I explain to people the difference between plant foods and animal foods and how they work in the human body because they work very, very differently in the human body. And nobody explained this before. Despite the fact that the data is all there, it's buried in the basic nutritional sciences, in the basic biological sciences and in the physiology. And um, based on all of that knowledge, I've written that book. This book, you know, I'm a bookaholic, as everybody knows, and um, love books, have them everywhere. But if you have one book that clarifies, uh, if you have to have one book, this is it. Because it's uh, Dr. Natasha, it's it's very readable, and it it addresses everything so um, clearly and concisely. And um, there is so much confusion, especially in the world of cancer. And uh, you clarified that for me at the medical conference. You talked about um, like you're not against vegetables. I mean, you know, that's a lot of people say, oh don't be a vegetarian. No, you're not against vegetables. You are for this uh, very inclusive eating plan. And tell us about the role of vegetables uh, in the human physiology. Absolutely. What we need to understand that plant foods, vegetables, grains, beans, fruit, nuts, seeds, they do not feed the human body. That sounds paradoxical to many people and very surprising. They do not feed us. They cleanse us. They're powerful cleansers for the human body. And I will explain why. All energy on our planet is recycled. New energy, as far as we know, comes from the sun. In order to capture the sun and to convert it into some solid matter we can touch and we can eat, Mother Nature created plants. They have photosynthesis. They capture the sun and they turn it into green matter that somebody can eat. Then in order for something else to consume the energy of the sun in the form of plants, Mother Nature created animals, herbivorous animals, cows, goats, giraffe, antelope, deer, and other herbivorous animals. And in order for them to digest this plant matter, Mother Nature equipped them with a very special digestive system. It's called rumen. A cow does not digest the grass herself. Because the most basic scientific fact we find in the 1930s in biochemistry and biology is that nobody on this planet can digest plant matter apart from microbes. Only microbes, a balanced microbial community, are well equipped to break down plants and to get something useful out of them. And Mother Nature used that fact, that scientific fact, in creating the digestive system of a cow. A cow has three enormous stomachs. Collectively, they're called rumen. And all of these three stomachs are full of microbes. So the cow doesn't digest the grass herself. It's that microbial community in her rumen that does the job for her. 
they break the grass that the cow eats into proteins, carbohydrates, fats, vitamins, minerals, and, and other things. And they allow them to be absorbed and to feed the body of the cow. We human beings don't have a rumen. We have a small stomach, one little small stomach, only one, and it produces hydrochloric acid. The acidity in your stomach can be pH below two, below one. It's a very, very hostile environment for microbes to survive in. That is why a healthy human stomach is almost sterile. There are very few microbes that are hanging around there and surviving in there. That makes plants indigestible for the human stomach. Remember, only microbes can digest plants. They're indigestible for us. Traditional cultures around the world that Western Price have been studying and other researchers have been studying have learned this fact through experience. They understood that they can't just survive on plant matter just as it is. They've learned how to ferment it, how to sprout it, how to cook it, you know, how to process plants in such a way which copies what happens in the rumen of a cow. So we break down the plants using microbes outside our bodies before we actually eat them, before we consume them. That is why every traditional culture around the world has fermented vegetables and sprouted uh, plants and, and grains. In many tribes in Africa, to this day, they would never even dream of consuming their sorgo or millet or you know other grains that they eat uh, as a routine, uh, as their staple, without fermenting it for a couple of weeks. First, fermenting it and sprouting it, allowing microbes to digest those grains for them first before they put them into their own mouths. And that was that was the practice everywhere else. So. The stomach of a human being, apart from hydrochloric acid, produces other elements, pepsin and other enzymes, which are perfect as a, as a mixture, perfect for digesting animal foods. Human stomach can digest beautifully meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. They are broken up properly. They are properly digested. And when they leave the stomach and go into the several meters of intestines, where absorption of food happens, they absorb nicely because only what's digested properly can be absorbed properly. Plants just sit in the human stomach. Nothing much happens to them. Uh, some juices are taken out, some minerals, some vitamins are taken, some cofactors are taken. But the bulk of what the human body is made from, plants cannot provide. What is the human body made from? This, this temple you live in, this physical structure you, you live in, in this material dimension, is made almost equally, 50-50, protein and fat. After you've taken the water out, of course, because majority of our bodies is water. So the dry weight of the human body is almost 50-50, protein and fat. When we analyze human protein and human fat in laboratory, we realize that in their biochemical composition, they're very similar to proteins in meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. And it's these proteins and these fats, and the same with fats, that get digested properly in the human stomach, and then they pass into intestines, they absorb nicely, and they allow our bodies to maintain their physical structure, to heal any damage, to heal from any disease, and to uh, supply the cell regeneration, cell turnover in the human body. Because your body, every organ, every tissue, constantly renews itself. 
the cells are constantly um, die, they get old, worn out, they die, they get removed, and new baby cells are born to replace them. This is an ongoing process, very rapid in the human body. And in order to give birth to trillions of baby cells on a daily basis, building materials are required. Proteins, fats, and water, and some cofactors. The most suitable and the only suitable proteins and fats for this process are animal proteins and animal fats. And they digest it well, and they absorb well, and they're used well. Plants have lots of proteins and lots of fats, but in their biochemical composition, they are unsuitable for building our human proteins and fats. The most well-researched plant protein is gluten. And um, practically every human being on our planet is intolerant to gluten. Whether this person realizes it or not, the more we research gluten, the more we realize that nobody can digest it. No human being, it damages everybody. And that's just one protein that we've researched. There are many, many more in the plants. We're starting to research some other plant proteins, and we're discovering the same things about those. They are the causes of allergies, intolerances, anaphylactic reactions, and damaged digestive system, and damaged you know, joints in the body, and damaged connective tissue, all sorts of things. The same with fats. Fats in plants are largely unsaturated, poorly unsaturated. We need some of those, and just by eating some raw plants or fresh plants on a daily basis, you will get plenty, because we only need a tiny amount of those. The bulk of fat consumption has to come from animal fats, because animal fats have the right composition of all these fatty acids for the human body. The composition of our own fat is very similar to the composition of fat that comes from beef and pork and lamb and deer and, and other animals. So that brings us to the conclusion that the only foods that truly feed, build, and maintain the physical structure we live in, the human body, are animal foods. Plants are incapable of feeding us. Then why do we eat them at all, the plants? We can live without them perfectly well. And that's another clinical fact. I'll tell you about that uh, in a few minutes. But we eat plants because plants are cleansers. Cleansers, they yeah. That was, that was such an epiphany to me, Dr. Natasha. They are for cleansing. That's right. Plants have lots of antioxidants, phenols, salicylates, vitamins, minerals, juices, which are great for keeping our bodies clean on the inside removing toxins, binding toxins, and so on. On top of that, plants are great for feeding our microbial community in the bowel, in the gut. And, and plants are, provide us with colors, flavors, fun, variety in our diet, which is nice, which is absolutely nice. The only thing what you need to understand is that you have to have a fairly robust digestive system to digest plant matter. And trouble is that majority of people in the Western world in particular now have damaged digestive systems. Because of all the chemicals we have in our food, the chemicals our agriculture uses, the antibiotics and all sorts of influences from the environment, people have damaged digestive systems. And now we have a growing population of children and young people who simply cannot tolerate plants. The more damaged one's digestive system is, the less plant matter this person can tolerate. And we now have diets 
where all plants are excluded completely. We have a diet like that in the GAPS nutritional protocol. It's called, it's called a no-plant GAPS diet. The way this diet was born happened some 10 years ago, maybe more now, when I was contacted by a group of mothers who had babies with FPIs. It's a terrible condition where an, a, a, an exclusively breastfed baby, a few weeks old little darling, is just not thriving. Vomiting, diarrhea, vomiting, diarrhea. The child is not growing. The child is losing weight and not developing. And when the doctors test these children, they find that the child is allergic to all proteins on the planet. So usually at that point, the breastfeeding stops. The baby is put on a synthetic formula, elemental formula. And the parents were told you can never give your child any, any protein. And if this family follows mainstream protocols, these children very often finish up with severe physical and mental disabilities. So when these children were referred to me, I realized immediately that their digestive systems are so damaged, they cannot tolerate even the mother's milk. They cannot tolerate, and most definitely, they cannot tolerate plant matter. So we tried the first stage of the GAPS introduction diet with them. It's the most limited stage of the GAPS diet where we cook every plant and we ferment our plants. We cannot eat, eat any plant matter uh, uncooked or unfermented raw. And the bulk of the food is, is animal foods. Even that wasn't gentle enough for these babies. So the next logical step was to remove all plant matter. And once we've done that with these families, these children started thriving. Vomiting stopped, diarrhea stopped, we started putting weight on, children started developing, started growing, and uh, the rest is history. So these children taught me that human beings can live perfectly well without eating plants at all. Many of these children have been on this diet, on the no plant diet for many years, they are thriving, there are no disabilities, no problems, bright children, bright eyes, bushy tails, doing great at school, wonderful, healthy children. But as soon as we try to introduce any kind of plant matter, even a vegetable that has been fermented for a month and then cooked for an hour, and even a tiny amount, diarrhea returns. Something returns and, and uh, we have to delay and we have to start very, very gently and very, very slowly with, with these people. But the fact that they thrive and they recover from severe health problems simply without eating plants shows us that human beings can live without plant matter perfectly well. We now have carnivore diet in the world where people do similar things. And uh, I started using this diet for adults and children with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, with severe mental illness, with cancer and with other problems. And all of these people recover. So this is a fact that life gives us, which we cannot argue with. These patients demonstrate to us we can live without eating plants at all. But thousands of vegetarians and vegans who have damaged themselves to such a degree, in many people it's, it's, it'll take years to reverse that damage, demonstrate to us that human beings cannot live without animal foods. Because plants simply do not feed us. It's only animal foods that feed us. If a person is overweight and has a high toxic load, a very toxic individual, you know, cleansing for a while is a good idea for that person. 
And that's what we need to understand, that veganism, where a person eats only plants and excludes all animal foods, is not a diet. It is a form of fasting. It's a cleansing protocol. For a person like that, who is overweight and with a high toxic load, to go on a good cleansing protocol for a while is a good idea. Very good idea. Couple of months, three months, until the body gives you a signal. And when these people go on, on a purely vegan protocol, and very often, of course, you know, they, they exclude all the processed plant right. matter. They pro- exclude the flour and the sugar and the mm-hmm. chemicals and the cakes and the chocolate and all, all that sort of thing. So they start feeling better, much better. And uh, many vegans in our world who are not familiar with my book and not familiar with the, they don't understand what they're doing because they feel better in those first few weeks. That's when they write their evangelical blogs and their books and they try to convince the whole world that veganism is the way to go. And that's wonderful. But at a certain point, the body will finish cleansing and it will become hungry. And the way it will convey this message to you that I'm hungry now, feed me. I've cleansed. I'm now finished cleansing. I'm hungry now. The body will give you a desire for a roast chicken, for a pot of cream, for egg, you know, bacon and eggs, for something like that, for animal foods. Unfortunately, many vegans in our modern world are doing the veganism for political reasons, emotional reasons, religious reasons, and other reasons. They don't listen to their body. They force it to continue cleansing when the body is asking to be fed. And that's when they fall into trouble. And that's when they start developing serious health problems. That is so wonderful to teach people to listen to their body. They're going to know how they feel. Uh, It's so interesting, Dr. Natasha, a patient I was just talking to a couple of days ago who uh, is recovering from cancer. Um, I was asking about her diet, making sure she was eating plenty of animal foods. And she said, the crazy thing, Debbie, is that I am craving animal foods. So like she, she, you know, she ate a just sort of a balanced diet before her cancer diagnosis. But then after her surgery, she had a um, part of her colon removed. Um, She was craving these animal foods, which makes sense based on everything you're saying, uh, because that's how we regenerate. So great. Well, tell us about um, how these purely plant-based diets impact the brain. In your book, you talk about uh, the starving brain. Absolutely. Our brain is a high-fat organ, and it's a high-cholesterol organ. About 40%, around 40% of dry weight of the brain is cholesterol. The rest are saturated fatty acids. And cholesterol is also used, apart from physical structure of the brain, cholesterol is also used in many functions of the brain. So it's not only a building material for the brain, it's also a a functional material. That is why majority of cholesterol in our blood is sponged up by the brain. And the body manufactures cholesterol all the time. People have been given this myth that cholesterol comes from food in your blood. That's not true. Cholesterol in your blood is maintained by your liver. The liver has a factory in it which manufactures cholesterol and manufactures saturated fats, packages them appropriately because these are fat-soluble things, and our blood is water-based. So they can't travel in the blood unpackaged, so they're packaged appropriately. And puts them into the blood, and then the blood carries them around the body. 
majority of this cholesterol and saturated fat is literally sucked up by the brain. And the more of these foods the person eats, particularly for breakfast, the brighter they are, the more they can focus, the more they can learn, the better their analytical ability and intellectual ability in these people. If you believe the dogma in the mainstream and decided I'm stopping to eat cholesterol and fat, you know, your, bo- your liver will just have to work harder. You will still have the level of cholesterol in your blood that your brain requires. It's just that your liver will work harder to manufacture all of that. And that's the case with many teenagers, the grumpy teenagers, you know. Mm-hmm. If they have breakfast cereal for breakfast with a skimmed milk and then an orange juice and something like that, you're going to have a grumpy individual on your hands, a grumpy teenager in the house. But if you give him bacon and eggs drenched in tallow, you know, or lard or something like that, that young man or girl will transform into the sweetest, brightest individual because you've given the liver a help, helping hand. So the liver doesn't have to work so hard. Anger and liver are always connected. Liver disease, anger plays a great role in in causing liver disease because anger and liver are connected. And what gets angry? The brain, because the brain is starving. It's cross because it's it's not getting its cholesterol and it's not getting its fat. These are very, very important things for it. The only way, so diet, just removing cholesterol and fat out of your diet, plays no role virtually, plays very little role in um, your blood cholesterol. The only way to reduce blood cholesterol is through taking pharmaceutical drugs called statins. These drugs break that factory in your liver, which manufactures cholesterol and manufactures saturated fats. That factory gets broken. And as a result, your blood cholesterol drops and your brain starts starving. And the first thing that happens in in any person who starts taking these drugs is their character changes, personality changes. Their spouses start complaining that he's become grumpy and intolerant and short-fused, and flies off the handle easily, and very critical, very negative. It just becomes a very unpleasant and difficult individual to live with altogether. And if that situation continues, the intellectual ability of the person starts reducing, and Alzheimer's disease develops. Before we invented statins, there was no Alzheimer's disease on our planet. This is a iatrogenic disease caused by statins. Statins are a number one profit-making drug for the pharmaceutical industry. That is why it is pushed very actively and every doctor, every medical doctor in the world is brainwashed that these are the best drugs in the world and everybody should be taking them, including children, in many cases. Apart from the brain, lots of other organs will suffer in the body if there isn't enough cholesterol going around. You cannot cope with any stress. Because all your stress hormones, steroid hormones, are made out of cholesterol. They're made in your adrenals, in your sex glands, and in other places in the body. And the the raw material for making these hormones is cholesterol. If there isn't enough cholesterol in the blood, you cannot produce these hormones. What will be the result? The result will be that you will not be able to cope with any stressful situation, with any pressure. You will have nervous breakdowns, meltdowns. Every time somebody puts any pressure on you. What does it have to do with um, sex hormones? What happens with sex hormones? You simply stop producing them. As a result, your libido goes down. 
and your fertility disappears. And in some people, even menstruation stop in women, menstruation stop, and uh, any sexual desire stops and disappears. Long-term vegans who have no cholesterol in their blood, have very little cholesterol in their blood, um, do not make happy families. They don't even have an interest in the opposite sex very often because there is no cholesterol in plants. Cholesterol only comes from animal foods. And on top of that, many cofactors and enzymes which are involved in running that factory in the liver, the factory which manufactures cholesterol, come from animal foods. So if a person for a long time hasn't been eating animal foods, then that factory in the liver starts malfunctioning and sometimes stops working altogether. These people are not taking statins. They just have deficiencies in nutrients. And because of those deficiencies and toxins that they may be in their body, that factory stops working. They can't manufacture cholesterol. And as a result, their blood cholesterol drops. And as a result, their brains don't work. And indeed, what we see in long-term vegans, we see a term which has been named now in a clinical practice. It has been named that this person is hangry, made out of two words, angry and hungry. They're angry because the brain is starving and the brain is hungry. So these are angry individuals. They're revolutionaries. They're evangelical. They berate everybody who eats meat, you know, and they consider themselves to be very... Um, prudish and very sort of righteous, while the rest of us are terrible sinners because we're eating animal foods. And they're very black and white, and usually sense of humor disappears first in these individuals. And their cognitive ability drops and their intellectual ability drops. And all of this happens uh, gradually and in such a way that they themselves do not realize it. Just people around them don't realize it, but out of kindness and politeness, they don't mention this to, to these individuals. They lose their brain capacity. So apart from the brain, adrenals, and sex glands, what else requires lots of cholesterol in the body? Your immune system. Your immune system cannot live without cholesterol and saturated fats, animal fats. It collapses in these people. That is why you hear vegans saying, oh, I'm very healthy. I never get colds. I never get temperature. I never get runny nose. I never sneeze. I never have a cough. Never ever happens to me. What they don't realize that who gives you the cough, the sneezing, the runny nose, the temperature, the malaise? Your immune system fighting the infection, cleansing your body, removing toxins, dealing with some threat in your body. But if your immune system is lying on the floor dead or half dead, it cannot launch inflammation, it cannot launch temperature, it cannot make you sneeze or give you runny nose or coughing or sneezing or anything like that. Your immune system simply doesn't work. The viruses just come into your body, infections just come into your body, settle in, you know, processes begin in your body. That is why many of these vegans uh, go through uh, infectious mononucleosis and other infections like that, and they it takes them years the infection just goes on and on and on and they don't recover from it fully because they're, they're immune impaired. Their immune system doesn't work. Without animal foods, immune system doesn't work. Cell regeneration, repair, any kind of healing in the body requires large amounts of cholesterol, animal fats, 
animal proteins and animal um, nutrients that other come that, that come from from animal foods, and these people don't heal very well. I it's see already, that in my clinical practice. That's right. They don't heal very well, and the cancer rates in long-term vegans are very high, four times higher than people who eat animal foods, because when the immune system is on the floor and it doesn't function for years and years and years. The problems that develop in the body and toxins that come into the body and infections that come and settle in the body are not dealt with appropriately. So they damage the body to a degree that the, the only logical step for the body is cancer to deal with that kind of situation. And indeed, many famous long-term uh, vegans, very famous who have written books and everybody knows about them, died from cancer. Usually cancer of the blood, cancer of the... Um, lymphoid tissue, these sort of things. So these are just a few organs in the human body that simply cannot function and live without cholesterol, animal fats, and animal proteins. Because only animal foods feed us and build our human bodies and make us function. And we can live without plants perfectly well. We can live entirely on animal foods. In your book, this reminds me, Dr. Natasha, about this story you told about cannibals. Um, in the South Sea Islands. And so fill this in for me because I'm just remembering. But um, on the coast, the people, of course, ate fish. And up in the mountains, the people were cannibals. So so tell us that story. This is a story told by Wesley Price. This amazing uh, dentist, American dentist, traveled for 10 years around the world in the 1930s. When Isolated indigenous cultures still existed in many places on our beautiful planet. Cultures where our Western lifestyles haven't arrived yet. They haven't been touched by processed foods and chemicals and all of that. They ate the way their ancestors ate for thousands of years. And in every case, Western Price found that these are very healthy people. And at the time, Nathan Pritihin uh, in New York was writing his very famous and successful books. He was a vegan. And uh, they sold millions of copies for some reason. For some reason, it was very popular. So veganism was in everybody's uh, right and center. And everybody were interested in this. And um, Wesley Price was also looking for a vegan culture around the world. He did not find one. Amongst hundreds and hundreds that he studied, he did not find one culture that was purely vegan. And it thrived. And on this island, he's described this situation that the population on an island was divided into two groups. One group lived at the coast, down by the coast. They were all fishermen, so they ate a lot of seafood. And these were happy, healthy, thriving people. People who lived up in the mountains and had no access to the sea, they largely lived on fruit and vegetable matter that they could get there. But every week they would come down to the coast and they would exchange their fruit and their plants with the fish, for the fish, with, with the coastal people. So that's how they got their fish. But when there were periods of time when um, there were storms or there was something else like that, when fish was not available, they would run down from the mountains and they would catch people from the coastal communities and eat them. And they particularly targeted fishermen because they knew that fishermen eat more fish than the rest of the population and their organs are particularly nourishing. Wesley Price has interviewed a fisherman um, in, in, in the coastal community who was in hiding because he said that I've been told that they've targeted me next. 
these people. So you see to what degree a human being can go when they're truly hungry. And we're always truly hungry only for animal foods, not for an apple or a piece of lettuce, for meat. In your lectures, uh, you talked about, or in the veg- in the vegetarian lecture, um, that people who'd been long-term vegetarians get so hungry for animal foods that they would sort of sneak around and eat something. I came across this several times. The first time, it was fascinating. I had a, a young man from Edinburgh who visited me here, and he told me this story. And he told me that you are the first person I have ever told this to. He was a vegan for four months, and he was walking along the streets of Edinburgh spreading leaflets about how good veganism is. And then he said, I passed past a door of, of a shop, and the smell of roasting chicken, you know, grilled chicken, wafted out. He said, I went into some kind of trance. I walked into the shop. I bought a whole roasted chicken. I came outside, sat on the curb, and I ate the whole thing. And then he said, I came out of that trance, and I was so ashamed of myself. I never told anyone about this episode. You are the first person I'm telling this, um, you know, telling this. So then I met another vegan who told me a similar story, then another vegan who told me a similar story. And uh, then I met a young woman who says that she will write a book because she was a vegan for 15 odd years. And um, she came across this phenomenon as well. And that she is going to describe it in her book, specifically focus on that phenomenon. So what happens with vegans? When their body gets to a stage of starvation, which is unacceptable, it will switch your conscious mind off and and you will have a binge of animal foods. You will gorge on meats, on fat, on eggs, on butter, on on all of these animal foods. Once the body satisfied its needs, the trance will be switched off, you'll come out of it, and you'll be so ashamed of yourself because so many vegans by then are running blogs and convinced half the world that veganism is good, and some have even written books. They're afraid to even mention that. And in some individuals, this sort of situation happens when the mind gets split these episodes get locked in some little corner of the mind and the door is shut and the person doesn't even remember this herself because she's refused to remember that. So they will tell you this, vegans, oh, I've been a vegan for 10 years. Oh, I've been a vegan for 23 years. Look at me, kind of thing. Don't believe it. They have binges on this sort of thing. I remember I was lecturing in Turkey once and uh, in the break between at the lunch break at the beginning, this uh, elderly man came to me, very, very sweet old man, and presented me with, a, with, with an English version of his book, uh, which basically tells you that he lives now for 30 years practically on lettuce, <laughs> nothing else, that he's a raw vegan. And he was telling me that he climbs the mountain every day and how happy and healthy he is and everything else. So I've just taken the book and thanked him. And then, uh, you know, in half an hour or so, I went for lunch in, in a restaurant in that um, in that hotel. And as I was walking through, in the corner, I see this little old man sitting, eating his lunch. And his plate was piled high with meat. <laughs> piled high. <laughs> the sweetest old man, and he seemed to be very sincere. You know, I had the thought, should I go and say hello to him? 
<laughs> well, that's what that's what's so one thing so cool about you is that you have you know you're a medical doctor with a with a postdoc in neurology and in human nutrition, so you can put the brain, you know, you can tie it all together and see how people you know compartmentalize these things that they can't can't deal with. Uh, Human mind can compartmentalize it exactly. They can lock some episode in your life that you're ashamed of or you don't want to remember. And indeed, you don't remember it. You know, you could, somehow it, they coincide together and they, they go together, these sort of things. The first time I've learned about veganism was in India because many people point to India, say, well, in India, they're all vegans, you know, look at them kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about this. Not at all. All the populations of India, I've specifically researched this subject. I traveled around India and I researched it. All the populations in India that live along waterways, along the ocean, uh, the the sea, the rivers, the lakes, the most important pieces of food on their plate are seafood, fish, fish and shellfish. And also they all have eggs, you know, and they, they, they eat as many eggs as they can, these people. They... Traditionally, vegetarian communities are are vegetarian not because they have chosen it, out of poverty. Mm -hmm. They live far away from waterways. And if they've grown an animal, it's more affordable for them. They can't afford to eat that animal themselves. They will sell the animal for meat, and the amount of money that they will get will be enough for them to buy rice for a whole year for the whole family. So, But if they're given a chance to eat a piece of meat or fish, they never say no. And all of them keep goats and keep cows. Why do you think a cow is a sacred animal in India? Because in many of these inland populations, they simply would not survive without the cow. She gives them an animal food, milk, cream, butter, ghee, cheese, which human being can survive on because it maintains the physical structure of the human body. That is why a cow is a sacred animal in India, because these poor communities survive on that. They all have chickens, ducks, and they eat plenty of eggs, as as many eggs as they can. They add into their rice and their vegetables. And I say whenever they get a chance to to have a piece of meat, they'll never say no to that. The Western-style evangelical veganism arrived to India with the books of that New York person, Nathan Pritikin, that I mentioned, who wrote those uh, very successful books for some reason. They arrived to India in the 1930s and they created this Western-style vegan communities in India. But none of those communities survive and they're no healthier and no better off than vegan communities in the Western world. So that's what we need to understand. And the first time I came across uh, Indian veganism is when I was having uh, a tour and the tour guide pointed through through the window of the bus we were driving by uh, he pointed this group of people dressed up in a special clothes. And he said, look, those are Hindu pilgrims. They travel across the country long distances to their sacred sites. And part of their pilgrimage is a 42-day fast. My ears immediately pricked up fast. Well, how interesting. The guy didn't know anymore. So next day, as I was on the beach, I happened to come across a group of these pilgrims sitting on the beach. They looked very tired. And in India, everybody speaks English pretty well. So I've I've spoken to these people and I said, as I understand, you have to fast for 42 days. What kind of fast is it? And they said, oh, yes, it's very difficult. You know how they bob their heads. You know, it's very, very difficult. And I said, what is it? Are you just drinking water or you're allowed to eat something? 
And they said, well, we're only allowed to eat. Listen to this. Bread, vegetables, fruit, nuts, grains, beans, vegetable oil. And I thought, ah, that's the Western vegan diet. <laughs> <laughs> These people, Hindu, Hindu religion is one of the oldest religions on our planet. These people consider it to be a fast, and they say it's very difficult, and they will do it only as part of their pilgrimage, and no longer than 42 days. So that's your history of the ancient history of veganism in India. The modern vegans in India are Nathan Pritikin's children. And by the way, Nathan Pritikin contracted three forms of leukemia at once. He fought them for many, many years and eventually succumbed to this, uh, to this cancer, died from it. Mm. So he's, he's hardly a good example. <laughs> oh, that, that, is, that is fascinating, Dr. Natasha. So as, as we look for better forms of, of animal foods, um, you know, a lot of things say grass-fed, but, you know, what, help us be more discerning, what does grass-fed mean? Is that something we can trust fully? In the mainstream, what governments have approved in the Western world, grass-fed means the cows are locked up in a barn, they never see the light of day, they never see the sun, while the farmer goes and plows up his fields uh, and uh, seeds them with a monoculture grass, some hybrid grass, feeds it with chemicals, then cuts that grass and brings it to the barn to feed the cows. And he's allowed to call that grass-fed. This is not what we mean. We mean, first of all, we don't want a hybrid animal. We want a real animal, certainly not genetically modified animal. We want a real animal that Mother Nature created. We want these animals on real organic pasture, under the sunlight. Because when animals are under the sun, there's vitamin D in their meat, in their fat, in their milk, in the foods that we get from these animals. The same with chickens. They must be in the sun. They must be on pasture. Chickens, in order to produce proper eggs for us, full of vitamin D, particularly in the winter. So that is the kind of grass-fed we want. So what I recommend to people uh, living in the cities, go to your farmer's market or go online, find real farms around the city. On the weekend, get your family in the car, drive out and go and visit that farm. Talk to the farmer, see how the animals are kept, see how the birds are kept, see how the vegetables are grown. Once you found farmers and farms which you trust, start buying all your weekly supplies from these people. It's a bit more work than just pulling a, a trolley in a supermarket, but you will be getting proper food, food that will give you health and vitality. Give it to your family, to give it to you. And you will start making good friends and you will meet good people. Because human contact is very important. You need to look in the eyes of that farmer. Can you trust this individual or not? You will feel it. You will know. And uh, if you talk to all your friends and family in the city and form a group, when there is a group, the farmers are very happy to deliver to one place in the city. So you don't have to do the driving. And uh, so they could deliver to one apartment and people in the city then can come and pick up their bits and pieces from you or from somebody else. Or you can establish a rota. Uh, so one week you drive and get the food for everybody for the whole week. Another week somebody else does that. What we need to understand that we have to abandon supermarkets if we want good, good food and good health. 
we simply cannot continue buying our food in supermarkets. Because who stocks the shelves in supermarkets? Industrial agriculture. Real farmers have no way of even getting there because the prices are so low and they simply cannot afford to deal with supermarkets, real farmers. These foods in supermarkets are full of chemicals. The organic label in the supermarket cannot be trusted. It could not be trusted for the last 10 years because as organic produce became more and more popular, the big agriculture wanted a piece of that pie. And because it's their people that are put into all the agricultural ministries in every government in the Western world, they control agricultural policies of Western countries. Big agricultural corporations, chemical corporations. They've changed all the regulations around organics. So now we have organic pesticides, we have hydroponics, which have no place in organics and other practices. Uh, so organic label in the supermarket cannot be trusted anymore. I'm sure some real organic produce manages to get in there, maybe here and there, but how do we know which one's which? which we can trust and which one we cannot trust. On top of that, we need to understand that food is information. What information are you buying in a supermarket in a, food of, uh, in a form of food? You're buying abuse, grief, disease, pain, suffering. How is that information going to give you good health? That is what you're eating on an on energetic level informational level, that's what you're putting into your body. When you go to a farm where a farmer loves his land, loves his animals, loves his birds, loves his soil, looks after everything with love and kindness, you are buying love. And that's the only energy that can give you healing and good health. Yes, it's a bit more uh, uh, extra effort to go and buy it and drive out and get organized, but all it takes is just getting organized. You know, people um, will say, oh, it's too much trouble. But then I'm, I'm like, well, how much trouble is it being sick? You know, it, it's really like the, you know, the ultimate um, thing to prevent problems. And, uh, you know, people will sell what, what we call in Oklahoma, sell the farm when, when they get sick. You know, they'll do anything to get well. Um, but to, this is a delicious way to stay well. You also talked about how these um, grazing animals replenish the land. So, you know, Dr. Natasha, we're here in Oklahoma. We, uh, my husband's uh, grandparents actually ex experienced the Dust Bowl. And because of the Dust Bowl, uh, you know, Oklahoma became, you know, sort of a, a desert for a while. And, and they had to move to California to find work. Uh, to even feed their children. So tell us uh, about how these grazing animals actually save the land. Yes, absolutely. The soil, the rich humus soil on our planet has been created by huge herds of herbivorous animals. When the Europeans arrived to the Americas, they saw the herds of bison that stretched to the horizon, literally. They could not be counted. Millions of heads of bison. The whole Great Plains of America were created by the bison over millions of years by grazing those lands. 
how do animals create soil? It's, it's this herbivores. So in order to save our planet and in order to restore the soils back to normal, we need lots and lots of cows and sheep and pigs and chickens and other animals. Not less. Where the mainstream propagandists tell you the opposite. I keep telling people that whatever the mainstream tells you, you have to turn it upside down and then you'll see the truth. So let's talk about the truth. What is the truth? The way Mother Nature designed the herbivorous animals, they are part of an ecosystem. They're not alone. It's an ecosystem. And the major members of that ecosystem are they, the herd of herbivorous animals, let's say bison or zebra in, in Africa. The second part is the grass itself, the grassland. And the third, a very important part, are predators. Predators, wolves in America, lions and hyenas and cheetahs in, in Africa and, you know, other, other predators in different places, they always follow these big herds of animals. And they play a very important role. They are shepherds. They are shepherds. What they do, they make sure that animals are bunched together, so they're literally touching each other on their sides, and they're a little bit nervous, so they don't relax too much. When they're in that state, they mow everything under their feet. They eat every plant. Because apparently uh, plants, uh, apparently animals um, can become fussy with food. And that's the situation that human beings have created. What human beings do, they build a fence. They put animals in that fence, lock the gate and forget about them. And there are no predators and there is no pressure. And there are only a few animals in that fence. So what the animals in that situation do they they have their favorite plants and they have the plants that they don't want to eat. It's like children. When you offer a child a proper meal or a cake, what's the child going to go for? Cake, of course. They would want a proper meal. The same happens with these kind of animals in a man-made situation. They start eating their favorite plants. They start with the first favorite plant. They will search for it in their pasture and they will eat it and eat it until they kill that plant. Then they start on their second favorite plant until they kill that, and then the third favorite plant. And in a while, all the good plants are killed, and all that's left are poisonous plants and something that nobody wants to eat. Pasture is destroyed. It's because of this practice of building a solid fence and putting animals there and forgetting about them, human beings, including our universities in the Western world, proclaim that animals destroy pasture. We need to call all the animals, get rid of them altogether. That's what they're teaching students in our agricultural courses at universities now. They teach them about this artificial situation. Nature doesn't build fences. There are no fences. There is open pasture, open prairie or great plains of America, and there are wolves, there are predators. So this herd of animals it's bunched. It's a little nervous because there are predators circling around and moving them along all the time. So they don't pick and choose. I like that plant and I don't like that one. They mow everything because there's competition between them. If you don't grab that lump of grass, the head next to you will grab it and you will get nothing. So they mow everything and they urinate and they defecate and they move on. No animal will eat food contaminated by their own excrements. And it takes about three months for the urine and the feces to go into the soil, turn into hummus, build a lovely uh, microbial community in there, in the soil. 
because whatever the, the cows haven't eaten, they've trampled. So when they leave that patch of grass, that patch of grassland, it's a complete devastation. There is no grass. Everything's trampled, eaten, and covered in feces and urine. Perfect. Leave it for three, four months. The soil will become thicker as a result because all those feces and all that will turn into humus and the grass will go woof on, on that rich soil. It'll grow. And only then the animals will circle and come back to that place and eat it again. Shepherded by the wolves or lions, hyenas in Africa and, and other predators in other places. That's how it works. So every time the animals circle, they move along all the time. They don't stay in one place. They're moving all the time, these animals. This has been researched very well by Alan Savory, a wonderful man um, who is now quite elderly, but he's created a Savory Institute. And for those who are interested in how to graze animals appropriately, please go to his Savory Institute. It's spelled like a savory dish, you know, S-A-V-O-R-Y, savory. And um, you will learn enormous amount of information on how to graze appropriately, how it all works, how the grassland economy works. So by circling like that through large territories, large herds of herbivorous animals, every time they circle, the humus becomes a few centimeters thicker. And then again, and then again, and then again. And that's how they build soil, and that's how they create soil. Our industrial agriculture, by pouring chemicals on our fields, on arable fields, they kill the microbial communities in the soil. Because soil is a microbial community. It's a rich microbial community, very balanced microbial community. Beautiful. And there are tiny microscopic things there, and then there are insects and worms and grubs and mice and voles and moles and, you know, bigger things in there. All of them are a part of the soil community. And they're all essential and all very important. The most destructive chemicals that arable farmers put on the soil is nitrogen fertilizers. Modern industrial arable farmers are addicted to this stuff because they've destroyed the microbial community in their soil. As a result, nothing will grow on their soils at all if they don't pour nitrogen fertilizers on it and phosphorus and other things that they put. Nitrogen fertilizers kill microbial community in the soil and majority of that nitrogen gets converted into uh, methane and released into the atmosphere. All that methane in our atmosphere is nitrogen fertilizers. And yet the mainstream global corporations, those powers, have created a, a lie, a, a ridiculous lie, a ridiculous myth, that it's the cows belching and causing methane. Mm -hmm. So we need to kill all the cows. Why do they want to kill all the cows? Because in the last 20, 30 years, they've invested billions people who own these corporations. They've invested billions into synthetic meat, synthetic eggs, and synthetic milk. These things are already in supermarkets. And real meat and real milk and real eggs are a competition. So it is within their commercial interest to destroy animal husbandry, to kill all the animals, call all the chickens, just get rid of all of that. So the humanity lives on their synthetic things. That's the motivation for culling animals. And in order to back that motivation, their pure commercial interests, they've created a myth about belching and farting cows. And they create a myth that um, animals destroy pasture and all sorts of other things, and that meat is bad for you, and fat is bad for you, and eggs are bad for you, and butter is bad for you. You know, all these nourishing things 
are bad for you and causing every disease. And they've been at it for decades, creating fake scientific studies. Millions of them have been created to back up their commercial interests. That's where it all comes from. Well, and it's those um, those animal foods that keep people uh, satisfied. You know, if you know, it, everybody knows if you just eat a bunch of processed foods, you're going to be starving. You know, it's going to send your blood sugar skyrocketing and then plummeting, and you're going to be that hangry that you mentioned, uh, Doctor Natasha. So, if you want to, if you want to feel good and stay, um, you know, not not get hangry, you have to eat some animal foods that are satisfying. Absolutely, because only animal foods feed us, feed our bodies and maintain our physical structure. They maintain the structure of your brain, big brain. They maintain the structure of your heart, your lungs, your liver, your digestive system, your bones, your muscles, everything in your body. Plants cannot do that. They cannot do that. The great way of fasting. So if you need a fast for a while, go on a vegan fast. Very delicious. Drink those juices, munch that lettuce, you know. <laughs> but listen to your body. At a certain point, there will be a signal. I'm hungry now. Give me a steak. Give me bacon. Give me fat. Listen to that signal. That is that is such wonderful advice. And I again, folks, I recommend um, reading this book. I, I've ordered. Uh, I actually have quite a few to to give patients. I love to to be able to say, you may not believe me, but you'll believe uh, Dr. Natasha uh, Campbell McBride because you have really researched this thoroughly. I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today, Dr. Natasha. You're uh, way over in UK. What's the weather doing there? It's frosty. It's frosty. Frosty, frosty but it's bright. Yeah. Nice. We're we're sunny. I think we're three degrees by now, which is really crazy cold for Oklahoma. But um, you know, it's good to regenerate the garden and you know get a get some change in weather. Well, how can people uh, find you and learn more from you? I have websites which I can put into a chat. I think, yeah, or, or I can give them to you. Okay, I'll post them in yeah. the show notes. So let me talk about it. My main website is gaps.me. And uh, there are many GAPS websites out there. Uh, they're run by GAPS practitioners and GAPS coaches and by enthusiasts. I only have one website, gaps.me, where I put information. We now have uh, many courses, GAPS courses, that run on gapstraining.com. I invite everybody to have a look at that website. We have a, a, an extensive list of courses which cover practically every situation. If you have a fussy eater, a child that would not eat anything, just fussy with food, we have a fantastic course where very experienced experienced practitioners will answer all your questions and literally take you by the hand through the whole procedure. And your child will be eating everything you put in front of him or her. If you have a baby or you're planning a baby and you would like to avoid the common pitfalls in our modern world and produce a really healthy child, please go on our baby course. You will, you will learn valuable information, extremely valuable. If you um, would like to become a GAPS practitioner, we have an extensive course. If you would like to become a GAPS coach, that's a different profession that we have, very popular profession. We have a course for that. If you uh, have problems with electromagnetic pollution, we have a course. We have an affiliate farming course with Joel Salatin as well. And I'm a farmer myself. Uh, about 
12 years ago now, we bought land in, in Britain here, in the East Anglia. And uh, it was a very damaged piece of land because it was farmed by conventional arable farmers for more than 100 years. There was no soil on the land, literally. Maybe an inch of soil, and grass clung to that soil. So the, the, it rains in Britain, so everything's covered with grass, and so it looks green. There were two big green fields. But the first time we tried to plant a tree in that soil, we broke our forks and broke our backs. We simply could not dig a hole because underneath that one inch of soil with grass on it, there was big boulders of flint and clay. That's all. There was no soil, literally. So what we finished up doing, we finished up inviting a local farmer with a big digger who dug up great big holes for us. And we bought tons of compost and we planted, we filled those holes with compost and we planted trees into that compost. That's how we started. There was literally no soil. And in these years that we've been here, our cows, our goats, our pigs and chickens and other birds have been working hard. We now have soil. We now have a good layer of soil, we are creating it, and the whole place has transformed. We are creating soil. When you create soil, you capture carbon out of the atmosphere. You capture methane and you lock it in the soil in the form of humus, because humus is a carbon polymer. It's a concentrated carbon and it holds it in the soil for hundreds of years. It's one of the most stable forms of carbon. So if you're worried about carbon in the atmosphere, create soil, make compost, Create soil and pile compost in your in your vegetable garden, and uh, you will be doing your bit for, for the planet in that sense. So that's what we've been doing, and um, we are self sufficient in food, and we have volunteers from all over the world who come here to help us and to learn. We teach organic farming. We have taught hundreds of people now how to milk goats, how to milk cows, how to look after chickens, how to look after gardens how to create soil, how to make compost, how to look after bees. We've got lovely bees here. We practice natural beekeeping, not conventional, natural beekeeping. So it's all possible. And uh, more and more GAPS people, GAPS patients who have been on the diet, healed their families, transformed their lives, are now leaving cities, buying land in the countryside and doing the same. And that's absolutely beautiful. No scale is too small. The more small holdings, the more farms like that we have, the more hope our planet has. You are so inspiring. And uh, I hope you'll come back and talk more in de depth about the GAPS program. That's what originally led me to you. And uh, Dr. Natasha, I can't thank you enough for your time. And uh, listeners, I, I know this has impacted your life and uh, made you want to go plant a, plant a garden wherever you are. So thank you all for joining us today. This is episode 140. And um, we're now in, let's see, we're in three, 30, 3,656 cities and 116 countries. And uh, that is thanks to all you listeners. Um, I'm newly on Instagram, so please join me there. And just go out and eat some real food, eat some satisfying food. Check out uh, Dr. Natasha. I'll put all of that uh, information in the show notes. And blessings until next time.